Shalom. Welcome to the Gospel According to Moses. We're in Lesson 45 on the book of Exodus. So we've made it this far. We're up to Chapter 18. And here we're going to see how a pagan, a non-Hebrew, has tremendous influence over Moses. Tremendous influence over Israel. Western society itself and even us. Matter of fact, I'm going to go to Dennis Prager's Torah commentary in his book, Exodus, the Rational Bible, to talk about this idea of a pagan, non-Hebrew, with the tremendous influence over Moses, Israel, and even us. Prager goes on to say, in keeping with the Torah's universal and moral concerns, the medieval Jewish commentator Radak made a powerful point. Now, just as an aside, what we're about to deal with in Exodus 18 is Jethro. And Jethro is a Midian priest, a pagan priest. Some say his some say it's Moses' father-in-law. We'll deal with it in just a little bit. But Radak, the medieval Jewish commentator, he makes a very interesting point. The story of Jethro follows right after the story of Amalek, which we dealt with in Lesson 43 and 44. So it's the story of Amalek, lest any Jew conclude that all non-Jews are enemies of the Jewish people. So Radak is saying God put this story of Jethro in this position right after the attack of the Amalekites to show and to teach Israel that not all non-Jews, not all pagans are enemies of the Jewish people. Going on in Prigger's commentary at Yad Vashem, the museum in the land of Israel that documents the Holocaust, has, it's, it has an extensive forest of trees planted to honor non-Jews who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. These are known as the righteous among the nations. This grove plays a comparable role to the placement of Jethro's story here. A reminder that even during the Holocaust, not all non-Jewish Europeans were Jew haters. In Jesus' day, there was this concept of the righteous Gentile. And in rabbinic writings, it says that a righteous Gentile will have a share in the world to come. That's the Jewish way of saying something that we're familiar with in Christianity. In other words, these righteous Gentiles will go to heaven. And the rabbis would say that if they adhere faithfully to the seven Noahide laws that are really initiated when God makes his covenant with Noah after the flood. And basically, the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day would say, you do those as a righteous Gentile, you're in. You don't even have to do the Shabbat. You don't have to do the rest of the Torah. Nothing. It's quite interesting. So what we have is Torah is really giving us a universal moral concern. 
universal in the sense that this Torah is written for all of us, Jew and Gentile alike. So we go to Exodus chapter 18. I'm reading again from the New American Standard Bible. And we read, Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in the foreign land. The other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my fathers was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of each other's welfare and went into the tent. Now, first thing we're going to deal with is Jethro, in Hebrew, Yitro. So I might be going back and forth between Jethro and Yitro, going back between the English and Hebrew. And it says that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, but we have a problem. We go back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 18. Reuel is Moses' father-in-law because Reuel had seven daughters. One of them is Zipporah. Moses marries Zipporah, so therefore Reuel is his father-in-law. This is also verified in Numbers chapter 10, verse 29. Now, a father-in-law in Hebrew, the Hebrew word is chatan. And the Strong's numbers H2859. And I'd like to go to the Inner Varsity Press Bible commentary on the Old Testament and to read commentary there about this issue. Retwell's the father in law, Jethro's the father in law. What's this got to do with this word chatan? Let's take a look. So in the InterVarsity Press Bible background uh, commentary, we read the difficulty, the difficulty that is Reuel is the father-in-law or Jethro is the father-in-law. The difficulty can be resolved once the ambiguity of the terminology is recognized. The term, chatan, designating male in-laws is nonspecific. The term referred to a woman's male relatives and could be used for her father, brother, or even grandfather. Now, most solutions take account of this. Perhaps Reuel is the grandfather head of the clan. Now, I disagree with that, because Reuel can't be the grandfather. He is the father of the seven daughters. Jethro is the father of Zipporah, but it says Reuel is the father of Zipporah. So, again, I'm disagreeing with this point of view based upon what the Torah says and as you know me, that's exactly where I'm trying to focus. I think there's a better solution here. It just makes more sense. First of all, let's take a look at the word chatan. Chatan means an association by marriage. Now that's kind of an overview. 
It is sometimes used for father-in-law. It is sometimes used for daughter-in-law. It is sometimes used for son-in-law. It's sometimes used for mother-in-law. Sometimes it's just used for marriages or the association of marriages. Genesis 34, verse 9. You can take a look at it. And God is saying not to associate by marriage with, if I recall, some pagan group. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, the same thing. Do not connect in marriage. And the word is katan there. It doesn't say father-in-law. It doesn't say mother-in-law. It says katan, an association by marriage. What's very fascinating is Deuteronomy 27, verse 23, katan is used for the mother-in-law. So again, as the InterVarsity Press Bible commentary is mentioning, this word katan is non-specific. So, one solution, I think is a better solution, is this. Reuel is the father-in-law. Moses is Chatan, because he has seven girls, and one of them marries Moses. Now, it so happens that if you have a priest of Midian, he's not the only priest. There are other pagan priests in terms of the false gods that the Midianites were actually involved with. So there's probably many pagan priests, and one of the daughters marries Yitro, marries Jethro, a pagan priest. So others married other priests, perhaps. We don't know. The key here is, Chatan, which is nonspecific, would mean that Jethro is Moses' brother-in-law. So this makes a lot more sense with regards to the confusion that the English translators are not trying to do away with. And they just confuse us over and over and over again. But the Hebrew is clear. So therefore, Ruel, Reuel is Moses' father-in-law, and Jethro is probably Moses' brother-in-law, probably not the son of Reuel, but probably one who marries one of Reuel's daughters. So once again, the Hebrew helps us uh, in the English. And it helps us with the confusing and sometimes irrational views and opinions and speculations that people have when they're only dealing with the Bible in English. For instance, there was a situation I was involved with where somebody came to me and said, chapter 18 of Exodus proves that Mount Sinai is not in Midian. In other words, not Mount Sinai is not in southern Saudi Arabia. Now, in English, I can see where this person might have come up with the conclusion, but not in Hebrew. So let's go see. Jethro comes from Midian, as we're reading in chapter 18. He comes to the wilderness of Sinai at the mountain of God. Now, wilderness, the Hebrew word there, basically means a desert, a wilderness, or an isolated place, an uninhabited place. So, it could be that the wilderness is in Midian. I mean, Midian is an area where the Midianites lived, and there are probably many places in the Midianite territory where land was uninhabited. Torah is not specific in the Hebrew especially. 
Now, later on, in Exodus 18, verse 27, Jethro returns to his own land. But the word land can mean land, it can mean country, it can mean the whole earth, it can mean your garden plot, it could specifically mean the place where his tents are. So Jethro simply left the uninhabited place, which could still be in Midian, and maybe not. Maybe it's not in Midian, but the, in Hebrew it is not specified. And he returns to his tents. He returned to his tents in Midian. So it could be that Yitro never left the area controlled by his people. But perhaps he did. Now, in English, one might mistakenly conclude Mount Sinai is now not Midian. But the Hebrew is again not precise. It is irrational to use Exodus 18 in English <clears throat> to say Mount Sinai is not in Midian, not in Saudi Arabia. Now, I've already addressed this in one of the podcasts here in the Exodus series that was entitled, Where is Mount Sinai? Now, I do not believe Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. I, I, I know there's a theory out there. I know some people are really pushing this. I see primarily that they're most pseudo-scholars. I don't see them as uh, really proven and trained uh, Christian archaeologists and Bible historians, Jewish Christian, uh, Jewish um, archaeologists and Bible historians, or even Arabian. I'm going to link you to Exodus Lesson 39, Parts 1 and 2. And so those links will be in the description at the website after the picture for this podcast uh, in the session description. And in there, you'll go into an argument based upon geography, real geography, to show that there is a real issue with the idea that Mount Sinai is in southern Saudi Arabia, which probably was the area of Midian during those days of 1446 BC. All this to say, it just drives me crazy to hear lessons and sermons and teachings where the speaker has no idea of the ancient Greek or Hebrew. They're not trained in it, and they're just dealing with English. They don't even know the historical context. This is why I do what I do. I try to teach and provide this instruction that will help all of us go deeper into his word, to, to expand our understanding and get to the idea that the Bible is real. There's so many times with the interest I could say interesting views and opinions of people who are trying to look at the English and come up with some sort of a conclusions and they're just so far off now to add to this here's a very interesting point and a very interesting fact about what we're dealing with in Exodus chapter 18 Israel arrives at the mountain of God in chapter 19. But it says here in chapter 18, verse 5, that Moses is encamped at the mountain of God. Jethro talks to Moses and said, why don't you teach the ordinances as the laws that God has given you? 
And the word is not lost, it's Torah. And indeed, as we're going to see later, God says, I've given my instruction, I've given my Torah, and he's doing this to Moses at Sinai. He's doing it at Sinai. So Moses had not received the ordinances and the Torah yet. Not here in 18. That begins in chapter 20. But here Jethro is saying, teach the ordinances and the Torah to your people. And he said, wait a minute. Something's wrong here. Now what it is is that this implies that this chapter 18 is not in chronological order. So this whole concept of Jethro coming, perhaps he came later. Now this makes sense. We're going to go into the JPS Torah commentary by Nahum Sarna. And his comments with regards to the chronological order of the Torah. Sarna writes, as early as the second century BC it was recognized that this chapter, chapter 18, is not in its proper chronological sequence and that the episode took place after the revelation at Sinai. The internal evidence for this judgment is set forth in Zevarim 116a and in Mehilta on Yitro 1.1. That is, it's in the Babylonian Talmud in those chapters. So, the summary from Zevahim or Mechalta basically is this, and this comes from the commentary by Avraham Ibn Ezra, a great Jewish scholar, and his commentary in the Talmud. One, as even uh, Ezra says, the people are already encamped at the mountain of God, that is at Sinai, where, as the notice about their arrival, does not happen until chapter 19, verses 1 through 2. Jethro brings burnt offerings and sacrifices, that's in verse 12, so that an altar must by this time exist. The only such one mentioned so far was at Rephidim, not Sinai, and in terms of the function, it was a memorial altar only. Therefore, the altar on which sacrifices are brought must either be mentioned uh, the one mentioned in Exodus 24, 4, or the one in the tabernacle. So again, Exodus chapter 18 must happen later, after they get to Sinai, after God gives the Ten Commandments, after he gives his Torah. Number three, Moses and his father-in-law refer to the laws and the teachings of God. This is in verse 16 and verse 20 here in chapter 18. A phrase that is far more appropriate following the giving of the Torah than before it. Number four, the story about the establishment of the judicial system is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 1 verses 9 through 17 and is immediately followed by the notice that the people set out from Mount Sinai. They left the area of Horeb. Nahum Sarna finishes by saying that the order of the narratives in the Torah need not necessarily be chronological, was well recognized in early rabbinic times. So this is a very key point that indeed, considering 
rabbinical commentary, they have brought up those places where we have issues with a chronological order. This happens in Genesis, happens in Exodus, it happens a number of places. So we now come to some verses in here that are just awesome. Exodus 18, verses 8 through 12. Moses told his father-in-law that the Lord, Yahweh, he told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So, so Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, that Yahweh, is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now what's really fascinating here is this. First, Moses greets Jethro with a kiss. Now later on, the Midianites become enemies of Israel. Now this happens later. You read about it here in, in the, the book of Numbers. But here, Midian and Israel are friendly. We read that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law 12 times in chapter 18. This is to make an interesting point. It probably means that Jethro is his brother-in-law, but regardless, this is family. The Midianites are, are, are family. And this, this also gives an idea of the antiquity of Torah, because if this was, if, if the Midianites are enemies and the Torah is written in the 2nd or the 1st century B.C., who would make up such a story? I mean, th this story is, it shows how the Midianites and the Israelites were close together. So that's first. Second, a pagan priest declares that the Lord, he uses God's name, Yahweh, he does not use the general word for God, Elohim, a pagan priest declares that Yahweh, not Elohim, is the greatest of all the gods. He does it by name. Now, pagan cultures were very tolerant of other gods. The Midianites knew that they had their gods, and they knew the Canaanites had their gods. They, they, they knew the Egyptians had their gods. Everybody has different gods. And... If one country defeats another country, that means the country who wins, that means our gods, are stronger than your gods. So, this is exactly what Jethro's doing. He knows the might and power of Egypt. This probably would imply that Jethro, as a priest of Midian, would certainly say they have powerful gods. I mean, the Midianites are not controlling and don't have such a big, rich empire. They're a small group of nomads. So they would probably say the Egyptians have powerful gods. But Yahweh, the Lord, 
the God of Abraham. He defeats all the gods of Egypt. So it was a witness to Jethro. And as a pagan, as a pagan priest, it only makes sense that he would say, indeed, Yahweh has got to be the greatest of all the gods because he defeated the gods of Egypt, which got to be some of the most powerful gods on earth. Now, here's an interesting thought. The Midianites are descendants of Abraham by Abraham's second wife, Keturah. You can see this in Genesis 25, verses 1 through 2. Now, we know that God trusted Abraham to teach all his sons about the Lord. This is one of the reasons that God chose Abraham. The other thing is, Abraham, in a covenant relationship with God, would teach his sons about circumcision and they would be circumcised. And it's fairly clear that the Midianites practiced circumcision, especially when Zipporah actually, in previous chapters, does the circumcision on Moses' son. So with this in mind, it could be that one of the gods, one of the gods of the Midianites, happened to be Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of their fathers. Now, the Midianites are pagan. This, this is clear from Numbers 25, verses 1 through 6, where Moab and the Midianite women were actually tempting the Israelite men to worship their gods. So Torah does not simply say that Jethro believed in the God of his fathers. It doesn't just say that he believed just in Yahweh. So it could very well, this pagan priest may also be a believer in Yahweh, but probably also one who had a, be a faith and belief in the gods of Midian. Now, adding to this, what's also amazing, Moses and Aaron and the elders, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, join with Jethro to have a fellowship meal together in terms of their honoring and their worshiping the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That's amazing. What a lesson for us. I consider all the denominations in the church. I consider the infighting, the debates, the anger sometimes between denominations. I mean, Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel are having a covenant, well, not a covenant dinner, but they're having a ritual dinner to worship God together with a pagan priest. So I think about that enmity and the dislike of some Christians have for other Christians. We're followers of the same God. Yet we can't put aside our differences for one day. A one day event where all could come together as one. I remember Promise Keeper events. For those of you that remember that back in years gone by. And it was for any Christian man, regardless of any denomination, regardless of race, creed, whatever. And we would attend these men gathering. And I mean, it, we would get thousands. I remember in Dallas, I believe it was like 60,000 men of all denominations worshiping God. 
we put aside our debates and put aside our differences that we can come together as one. It didn't last long. I wonder if Hasatan, the adversary, the devil, had something to do with that. Remember Jesus saying that he would want us to be one as he and the Father are one. Now third, Jethro, he hears the testimony of Moses of what the Lord has done. Moses testifies about the awesomeness of Yahweh. No wonder David could write Psalm 23 that we're his sheep. We're in his care. It's just like Israel. Israel is called the flock of the Lord time and time again. Look at Ezekiel 37, verses 11 through 31. It is so clear. God is saying, I am the shepherd of Israel, and Israel's my flock. Moses is telling Jethro the truth of this concept. But then we remember Jesus. He's the good shepherd. He tells us this about himself in John chapter 10. When he does that, there's no New Testament. It's almost as if Jesus wants us to see him in Psalm 23. Maybe he wants us to see him as the one Moses is telling Jethro about. Going back to John 5.39, all scripture testifies of me, Jesus said. So we see scripture then in the Torah, testify of the awesomeness, the greatness, the majesty of our God, the, the majesty of our Lord, our Savior, the King of the universe. So we're going to end lesson 45. We'll call this part one, and we will pick up the rest of lesson 45 on Exodus chapter 18 in lesson 45, part two. See you then.